Then again, open your Bibles, please, to 1 Kings chapter 19 and verses 19 through 21. There's a sense in which this could have, I suppose, be the beginning of a new chapter. Uh, More on that next time as we come to see uh, how the life of and the ministry of Elisha now begins to uh, take form. But for the moment, notice that there is that change, and that is that Elisha now is uh, Elijah's uh, protege, and from this moment on begins to minister or to serve the prophet. Dale Ralph Davis writes, Israel's fate hangs behind Elisha's call. And Kylan Dalich in their Old Testament uh, series on, um, well, the whole of the Old Testament, uh, they write, as he has plowed his earthly field, with 12 pair of oxen, he was now to plow the spiritual field of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, what, one of the things that we saw, and in my judgment, probably the most important thing last time was the sovereignty of God. We focus, of course, on the narrative, and the narrative has so much to do with Uh, Elijah is fleeing from Jezebel, Um, his uh, traveling several hundred miles all the way to Mount Horeb or to Mount Sinai, and along the way uh, receives the ministry of the Lord himself or his um, servants, his angels. And then just before this section is introduced, there is the Lord speaking a second time, prophesying about certain uh, kings and about um, the coming uh, of Elisha uh, and uh, also the 7,000 that have not bowed the knee uh, to Baal. So the Lord speaks again. And as I said last time, and we sort of closed, I think the sermon more or less on this note, that in a very real sense, this whole passage has more to do with God than it does really with Elijah. Now, it has to do with Elijah, and Elijah's called to be a prophet and all of the rest. But so much of the focus is upon the Lord doing this and doing this and doing this and doing this and speaking and speaking and speaking. And it's the Lord who speaks, and it's the Lord who restores Elijah from his melancholy, and it is that which put puts Elijah back on his two feet and goes on to receive the uh, word of God and then ultimately to act upon it as well. Now, Elijah travels once again, and he's a man on a mission, and he's a man looking for Elisha, And he finds him, verse 19, 
And again, he travels some distance, probably 156 miles. We ought not to think that, that these events took place on Monday and then on Tuesday and then on Wednesday and so forth. There's too much distance and, and travel time. And so what the Bible gives to us are the, the bullet points, the, the important things that um, are being done. And there are a couple of things that we need to notice in this speech of God. The first we would have seen last week, and that is the judgment of God. And the judgment of God, um, the equity, I guess, or the judgment of God against Israel. Another thing that we ought to notice at the outset is the strategy of God. God is always planning, um, or perhaps it's better to say, always at work. And he's doing so once again, as he often does, with uh, preparing or sending and then preparing men for the work of the proclamation. He does his greatest work by proxy, by calling someone else. He calls Elijah, and Elijah passes the mantle on to Elisha. But we find the same thing in the New Testament. There are those who are called and selected to carry on um, this work of proclamation, both of judgment and of salvation. Think of Timothy, for example, uh, that was tutored by the Apostle Paul and trained and prepared and had a ministry. Undoubtedly, God's people sometimes have anxiety as they reflect upon the current uh, situation, uh, and um, yet God provides ministers, if you will, to proclaim the truth and promises that a remnant would exist. That is, that 7,000 did exist. And so the work continues. Elijah eventually will uh, retire off the scene and will be carried into heaven in an unusual way. And Elisha will take up um, the cause. And it's interesting that Elisha, and we'll see more of this later, is not a self-called man. Arthur W. Pink writes, Hitherto there had been none to help him, that is, Elijah. And he cries out as if he's the only one. There are a hundred prophets hiding in a cave, but he's the only verbal, um, vocal uh, uh, prophet at the time. Pink says, hitherto there had been none to help him, but in the hour of his despondency, God provides him with a suitable companion and successor. And by the way, that's one of the ways that this despondency or melancholy was removed, that he, that he finally had someone or did have someone to work with him. Pink goes on to say, it has ever been a great consolation to godly ministers and their flocks 
to think that God will never lack instruments to conduct his work, that when they are removed, others will be brought forward to carry on. And again, more on that in just a few moments. Roger Ellsworth writes, the passage is, after all, not so much about the office of prophet as it is about, as it is about God's calling. And God still calls today. He calls sinners to salvation, and he calls saints to various forms of service. And so Elisha is called, and it is Elijah that is used to call him to this service. Notice several things then about this call of Elisha. First of all, the call of God was suitable. It was appropriate. It was, it was fitting. It's divine. And that puts a priority or puts the biblical priority. It was divine, so Elijah found him. There was no mistake He was not lost to view. Remember that Elijah traveled some 156, 160 miles to where he is. But he didn't have trouble finding him because he was well known. He was the son of Shaphat. And so it was Elijah's priority to find the man that God had called him for service. Now, notice not only his priority, that is Elisha's priority, but also his family. It would appear as if he was a part of a godly household. Um, Remember that 7,000 had not bowed the knee, and there's every reason to believe that Elisha's family was a part of this this 7,000. And we think that's probably the case, secondly, because his name means God of salvation or my God is salvation. And no one would give that name to their child unless the parents were believers. It would seem as if he had grown up with the the simple habits of piety. Again, if he actually comes from one of those families, part of the 7,000, and we notice something of his piety and his integrity in the sense here that, that he knows what to do by, wake, by making a sacrifice. Where did that come from? It must have been something that he knew that he witnessed on a regular basis. And we can debate as to whether it's a sacrificial meal, that is, he offers as a sacrifice, or whether he butchered the oxen in order to provide for the people. And there are commentators on both sides, and perhaps both of them are true. Notice how he is found, however, how suitable this is. He's found doing what? Faithful in his ordinary duties. And men who are called to the ministry need to be faithful in their ordinary duties. And if they're not, then they ought not to pursue the ministry. 
The ministry is not for the lazy, the indolent, and those who have never worked or don't know how to work. Working in the field, that's hard work. And working is great preparation for the ministry. First of all, it's work. And then secondly, it puts you in contact with a great number of people. John Gill believes, and I don't know why he believes this, but this particular area, the soil was particularly rocky. Hence the 12 yoke of oxen. This was hard work. It wasn't soft work. Here was a man who had proven himself faithful in the ordinary duties and responsibilities of life and probably enjoyed a significant amount of prosperity if he had 12 yoke of oxen and there may have been each man there were 12 men, each had two. We're not sure exactly what all of this, how this worked itself out. But the fact that there were 12 yoke of oxen would suggest that um, he was probably um, rather wealthy or came from a wealthy family. Alfred Edersheim says, men's estimate of themselves is generally in the inverse ratio of their qualifications. How few possessed of gifts are willing to wait the call of God? How few, even without gifts, or else who imagine they have gifts, are willing to wait? It seems to be forgotten that incapacity to serve God in a few things is evidence of inability to serve Him in many. And that he who cannot make it possible to be faithful in little may never be entrusted with that which is great. And I've observed uh, over all of these years of ministry, and it's actually been true in our own church as well, that uh, there are those who've walked through our doors found this to be the most inviting place of all. And they come with a professed sense or a professed belief in, in what we do. And they immediately say that they're ready to become an elder or pastor in the church. We've had it happen. And when asked to wait, the door almost hits them on the way out the door. They don't have the patience. They don't have the patience. They're not willing to wait. They're what we call self-called men, and you can't convince them otherwise. Elisha was not a self-called man. Here was a man who was identified by an existing prophet. And here was a man, how suitable is this calling, because he left his worldly employment, his worldly entitlement, and as we'll see in a few moments, uh, 
his worldly enjoyment. He gave up all of that. First of all, then, the call of God was suitable. Secondly, the call of God was surprising. It was unusual. It was unexpected, peculiar, special, and individual. Much like Moses was called at the burning bush, just surprising. Uh, Matthew was called, sitting at his tax collector desk, and And Jesus says to him, get up, follow me. And he gets up and he follows him. It was surprising. He didn't expect when he got up that morning, any more than Moses when he got up that morning, expected to be called by God. The call of God was surprising. It was unusual. It was also official. Um, Elijah cast his mantle upon him. And it's interesting, isn't it, that that language has uh, come into um, the vernacular, or at least it used to be. I don't know if it still is now, but we speak of someone uh, having the mantle cast on them or the mantle was cast over them. They were chosen uh, to be next in line for uh, what, whatever it was. Here was a symbolic act, a symbolic act of investiture as a prophet. Thirdly, it was ministerial. It wasn't for his self-advancement or his self-aggrandizement. It was not for those reasons, but it was for service. And we'll see that, in fact, in the very last part of verse 21. And it was intentional. It It was intended to continue the prophetic office. And the prophetic office, we don't have prophets today, but the equivalent of that needs to continue. No man ever enters the ministry planning to retire, at least I hope they don't, nor do they anticipate retiring. It's it's barely on their radar. And yet 10 years go by and 20 years and 30 years and on and on it goes. Ministers don't live forever. And so they must be replaced. Another must take their place. One of the um, encouraging things, um, blessed things, and there were many of them, um, but um, about Ron's prayers, when he would pray almost every time, first of all, he prayed for his pastors, but secondly, he prayed for IRBS. Remember that? that. He prayed because he believed in another generation coming along to preach that wonderful faith that he and Dana had come to discover. First of all, Christ, but then Christ embedded in Reformed Christianity. And someone needs to carry that on. And Don's getting old, so we need to find another generation. Now, he never said that, of course, but you get my point. That we need to provide for the next generation. And that's exactly what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, to train others, that they might go on and train others as well. 
Elisha did not seek Elijah. Again, he was not a self-called man, but Elijah sought him out and cast his mantle. Divine investiture. So here was a supernatural act. It It dramatically showed God's prerogative and ultimately Elisha's obedience and readiness. And the call of God was surprising in that it was total. He left entirely his former life. There was a complete break with the past. He followed the call. Dale Ralph Davis says or said, suddenness is the wrapping paper in which sovereignty sometimes arrives. He has just such a unique way of saying things. Think about that. Suddenness. Just even on a larger scale, we pray and we pray and we pray and we all, we almost give up hope that the, the Lord is going to answer a prayer. And then suddenly, there's the Lord. Suddenness is the wrapping paper in which sovereignty sometimes arrives. And so Elisha, like the apostles of old, in their case, taken from fishing to become fishers of men. A suitable calling, a surprising calling, and a substantial calling, thirdly. God's call was not insensitive. When Elijah says to him, when Elisha says, let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, go back again. We might take that initially as a, as a rebuke from Elijah to Elisha. But it wasn't a rebuke at all, but rather a call to a ready mind. If this call echoes in your cart, if this call echoes in your heart, then come. And again, some might think, well, this is like what Jesus said to a man in Luke chapter 9, where he said, well, I, you know, I'd love to follow you. This is a paraphrase, obviously, but, but, but let me go home, first of all, and bury my father. Well, there's no indication that his father was dying or was even dead. What he was doing was looking for a delay. Yeah, I will follow you, but let's delay this a little bit. But this is not the response of duty or of delay, but rather it was charity, a matter of charity. There were obstacles in commitment in Luke chapter 9, but here it was to dissolve a connection and not to delay a commitment. There's a difference between the two. He's not saying to Elisha, 
um, let me go home, say goodbye, and we can delay this as long as possible. That's what's going on in Luke 9. But here, he's merely saying, let me say goodbye, because goodbye is goodbye. He has, or will, lose, if you will, or forfeit the kind of uh, common relationship or at least um, the uh, ability to be with his family. And so God's call is not insensitive. There was something to take care of, but immediately, not permanently. God's call was not insensitive. God's call was not manipulative. It was not forced. It would be costly, but it would be Elisha's decision. And God's call was not inattentive, narcissistic, egotistical, selfish about himself. What does he do? He slaughters the oxen uses the yoke of oxen to build a fire and makes a sacrifice. Now again, scholars are a little uncertain. Did he do that just to feed the people who would have been dependent upon him? Or was there a spiritual element of sacrifice involved? In any event, this was a substantial call. He is actually going to say goodbye, and he proves it by sacrificing the oxen, the means of his present employment. And he even takes the yoke and uses that to build the fire. This was costly. It was substantial. So it was substantial. It was surprising, it was suitable, and it was significant. God's work was not going to end. This is an interesting text because it's the only occasion in the Old Testament where a prophet is anointed or indirectly anointed with the the mantle falling upon him. Priests were anointed, kings were anointed, anointed, but here Elisha is being told in a very direct, illustrative way of what his purpose was, what his pursuit would be, and what his occupation would be as well. Roger Ellsworth says, God changes workers, but the work goes on. And that's what what is taking place here. Elijah, Elijah must pass off the scene and, but must be replaced because the work goes on. And it's not that the, Worker has first place or is most significant. It's the work that is. And so the cost of God's call 
was high for Elijah, but also for Elisha. Now, fifthly, and I've already hinted at this, the call of God was stirring. By that, I mean it stirred up a response in Elisha. And of course, that's the point of God's calling, isn't it? Psalm 110 and verse 3 speaks of, of God's people being made willing in the day of his power. And so God comes to Elijah, and now God comes to Elisha through the prophet Elijah. And so notice several things about this call. The call of God was powerful, I've already said that. It was effectual. The call of God was responsible. It was sensible. There was a way to go about it. He goes home to say goodbye. It's not a delay, but it's a matter of duty. He took care of business. He'd been taking care of business all of his adult life, it would appear. He was someone who was responsible, someone who was accountable, and you don't want a prophet to be anything less than accountable and responsible, and that's proven in the life of duty before beginning ministry. The call of God was publicized. Thirdly, it was serviceable. There was this feast. Everyone could see that something was going on. Everyone could see that something unique was happening. Everyone could see uh, what was taking place with the passing of the mantle and the and uh, the sacrifice and the, and the uh, uh, the uh, the meal that was prepared. The call of God was sacrificial. It was spiritual, devotional. There must be something there about this sacrifice that is more than just providing food, though it did do that. And then notice, and we'll see more of this in future sermons, but the call of God was functional. What was it that Elijah did? Well, we don't know too much about it yet, but notice that final verse. Then he arose and he went after Elijah and ministered unto him. He served the prophet. The call was practical in the sense that in serving the prophet, he was being tutored by the prophet. Matthew Henry writes, it is of great advantage to young ministers to spend some time under the direction of those that are aged and experienced, whose years teach wisdom, and not to think much, if occasion be, to minister to them. Those that would be fit to teach must have time to learn. And those that hope hereafter to rise and rule must be willing first to stoop and serve. Or as Tom Lyon put it, grace and gifts are no substitute for a solid education. And we learn elsewhere that he spent these years of being tutored. They were seven years. So one writer says, for seven years, Elisha was under the best 
of preparatory influences for his work. In like manner, it is highly requisite that those who in our day are to be the teachers of others and should should themselves be especially instructed. There will always be exceptions to every rule, but their cases are no rule for others. So as in Elisha's case, they must reach their goal at the side of some Elijah. Well, there are several thoughts that emerge by way of conclusion. First of all, the call of Elisha means that God's work continues. It does not end with the end of a particular prophet. Though we have no prophets today, as I've already said, we do need to ask the question, will the work of gospel ministers in our generation survive in this age of paganism, pluralism, and all of the other isms that plague us. Some of us were talking about this at lunch today. The work under Elijah, not his work, but the, the, uh, the nation itself, had deteriorated. And judgment was coming, verses 15 and 16. As far as he could tell, he was the only one left. And we ought not to get to that place. Because throughout biblical history and beyond, recorded history beyond, God's servants have been replaced. One falls through death, another one takes his place, and the church goes on. And that happens from generation to generation to generation. The other thing, or a second thing we need to learn from the text is that Christianity in general cannot be made convenient, easy, handy, light, breezy, and entertaining. As if Christ existed for our convenience. Elijah and Elisha are prophets. And so they're called upon to serve in a unique capacity. But they're believers first and prophets second. Roger Ellsworth says, if we are not willing to sacrifice anything for Christ, we may rest assured we have not really come to know him. Spirituality, biblical spirituality requires sacrifice. And so we need to learn not to fret so much as to be fruitless 
or to put it differently, bleak times do not mean that God's cause will bottom out. That God's cause will, to keep the alliteration, will bomb and come to an end. The church has passed through difficult times before. Ministers have ended their ministries differently than the way they thought when they entered. But others take up the call, the mantle is passed, and the church goes on. And the church is more important than any single pastor or minister, more important than any single individual, any one of us, the body of Christ and the word of God and those who minister the word of God take that precedent. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your calling of men into ministry, for prophets in the Old Testament, apostles in the New Testament, elders, pastors, teachers in the subsequent generations. We thank you for this text, and it's, it's really an encouraging text, as much as it required of Elisha to sacrifice so much of his life, it, it does remind us of the importance of ministry, of the people of God, and the purpose and the plan of God. Help us, O God, to take great hope from this text and others like it. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.